And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin. He's a Christian minister, a theologian, and an author, and he's founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership in Coulterville, California. Uh, Andrew, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Thank you, Dan. It's very good to be back, and I'm especially grateful for the work that uh, you do. There aren't too many uh, media ministries like yours today that are really focusing in on some of these issues that you are, so I'm very happy to participate and help in any way I can. Well, we appreciate your work, and um, today we'd like to explore with you this uh, rather large subject of the advance of God's kingdom here on earth. Um, you know, our, our interest as Christians uh, is in the Great Commission and how God is affecting this world in bringing men and women to himself, but then transforming their lives, uh, leading to human flourishing in society. And um, really, there's no area that's off-limits in terms of the reach of the gospel. Uh, Certainly, we have the church. We also have other areas like law and government, medicine, environmental stewardship, educational institutions, technology, media, entertainment, all of that. Um, There was a news story that caught our eye concerning the land of Poland, and we'll get to that later, but uh, just a a marvelous uh, statement uh, with a bunch of them gathered together. They called it a jubilee act of acceptance of Jesus Christ as King and Lord uh, of Poland. And I, I was amazed to watch this uh, video online, and yet um, also not surprised that our our uh, main street media, as some people like to call it here in the states, completely ignored the story. So anyway, um, but let's talk uh, first of all about the legitimacy of such a transformative view. A um, lot we could ask, but let's get going. I want to hear from you, uh, Andrew. Um, is God really interested in this world and in? transforming it prior to the second coming? Yes, that's a, a fundamental question. I, as you were talking there, Dan, I was thinking about a quotation from uh, one of my favorite theologians, now long passed away, Cornelius Van Til. He once said, the sweep of redemption is as comprehensive as the sweep of sin. Uh, it's a powerful citation because really it drives us back to uh, the foundational book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And here we see God's creating the world and uh, everything in it, and uh, God's verdict over it after day six is he saw everything that's very good. And then, of course, moving on quickly, we read in Genesis 3 tragically about the entrance of sin and the fall. But then, of course, we come to verse 15, and immediately uh, the Lord puts into place, as he speaks to Adam and Eve, the uh, what's often called the proto-proto-evangelium, the, the early early message of the gospel. And without going into detail, he's speaking there of Jesus Christ, who's going to crush the satanic work that entered the world. Well, back up, we think about that. Well, what what does sin affect? Well, sin affects every area of our life. It affects uh, our our intellect, it affects our emotions, and uh, it affects our bodies and everything we touch. So sin affects medicine and education. Uh, You look at architecture. Uh, you can tell the difference between depraved architecture 
and godly architecture? And of course, that's true across the board. Well, the point I'm making here, Dan, is if sin has infested all of these areas of life, why would we think that there is a gospel that would not address all of these areas of life? <laughs> Uh, the 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 evangelical way, sadly, in the last 150 years, has been to narrow the scope of the gospel to personal salvation. But the the message all the way in that initial gospel in Genesis 3:15 is not simply to save man from sin, although that's obviously a, a fundamental point, but to restore all of creation. So to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God aren't interested in these other areas of life is really to say that God isn't interested in uh, eliminating, progressively eliminating sin in all areas of life. And if that's the case, we're really saying that Christ's death is not effectual to do away with what Satan did. In essence, in a way, we're saying that Satan will get the victory, and we know that's not true. So I think the way that you put it a couple of minutes ago is is absolutely correct. All of these works of influencing every area of culture for Christ, that's really a work of cultural redemption. Obviously, we're not doing the redeeming, but we are agents of preaching the work of redemption and acting on the work of redemption accomplished by Christ on the cross. Yeah, that's helpful, Andrew. You know, I was reading a book the other day, and it was talking about different models of how um, we view grace— does it, is it above nature? Is it alongside? Is it working within nature? And uh, I was particularly interested in that model of grace working within nature and transforming the very essence of it. And and I I, I think that's the way the Lord works in in His mysterious ways. In in this, um, I like I like this also this comprehensive aspect of redemption. You you mentioned the Dutch theologian Van Til. I think he had it right in your quotation there. Yeah, that's right. I think what's happened, Dan, often among conservatives, well-meaning, certainly among evangelicals, well, let's take break down the word, of course, and it is the, the evangel, uh, which is basically another word for the gospel, the good message. So there's a strong emphasis on the redemptive aspect of the faith, but there hasn't been as much of an emphasis on the work of creation. But I don't think people understand that the gospel is essentially God's work to both restore and enhance creation. The gospel is not somehow detextualized from, detached from creation, as if it was to create some new thing. Um, now, what is that? I think we mentioned Van Til said, when you, when you get converted, God doesn't give you a new brain, right? <laughs> he, he redeems the, the one that you have. The problem isn't that you're your brain or your mind is inherently defective, but through the fall it's been cursed and and it's been plagued by sin. Well, the work of the gospel and what I said of the brain is true in all areas of life. I love that expression, uh, transformation. Niebuhr, of course, you know, the neo-Orthodox did write an excellent uh, taxonomical book on that Christ and and culture, you know, in the 50s, and he, Mm -hmm. he gives different paradigms, and I think the one that is correct is his last one, his fifth one, which is Christ, the transformer of culture. Right. Not Christ above culture, sort of flying above the world <laughs> and, you know, come up to me and escape this. Now, the biblical approach is not really escape from the world. It's transformational by the power of Christ's death and resurrection to transform the world. So if we're not in the business of transforming what's going on right now here, I don't think we're fully faithful to the gospel. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it, there was a lot of questions that came to my mind as I reflected on this 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 thing that happened in Poland. You know, very fundamental questions like, is God, um, has he placed us in sort of a holding pattern, waiting until the second coming, and only then will he really transform things? And, and even uh, our callings, uh, does he even care that we are working very hard at our callings if everything is delayed until some future point in terms of transformation. And uh, then finally, uh, the question came, how really great is this great commission? And and when I open my Bible, I start reading about it, I realize, wow, the great commission is far-reaching. Oh, yes, it is. Um, I, I think that... Um People do understand the Bible teaches that not until the eschaton, until the the uh, the eternal age, will all sin, of course, be abolished, and there'll be a state of perfection. I think understanding that they assume that almost nothing then should be done or accomplished. But you've touched on the point: if it really is the Great Commission, and if we're called, as the language uh, in English would put it, uh, to disciple the nations, according to Matthew 28. If that is the case, then we cannot help but change culture. I mean, let's think about this for a minute. People often think about and use the term revival or reformation. So let's stop back. Let's say that through a great move of the Holy Spirit of God that a large number of people in Poland or elsewhere trust in Christ. Well, how are they going to live their lives? Someone might say, well, the good thing is that they're going to have eternal salvation and go to heaven when they die. Well, do they wait then? If it's a politician, does he wait, or did he, does he not try to implement uh, Christian truth in all that he does? And this is true of a software writer. It's true of a mom teaching kids at home. Uh, it's true of a, a car salesman. Aren't all of these supposed to influence the world for Jesus Christ? Uh, and even in beginning changing their own behavior. Well, if a large number of people did that, that would automatically then start to have a social impact, even if they didn't intend for it to. So there's no way that you can believe in the success of the Great Commission without also not understanding that the gospel is supposed to impact culture in all of life. Yeah. You know, I I can't wait any longer. I I want to read a few lines from um, this statement. Uh, In Poland, there was a large gathering back in uh, 2016, and it was largely um, a Roman Catholic, and... um, you know, we're certainly Protestant, but I really appreciate a lot of what happened there. Yeah. Um, they, their, their statement started off, um, O immortal King of Ages, Lord Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. And they mentioned the Jubilee year of 1050, the anniversary mm-hmm. of their po- uh, Polish baptism. Uh, and then they say, We Poles stand here before you, together with our authorities, clergy, and laity, in parentheses, to acknowledge your reign, to submit ourselves yes. to your law, yes. to to entrust and consecrate to you our fatherland and our whole people. And, um, and then it goes on. Uh, we confess before heaven and earth that we need your rule. We acknowledge that you alone have a holy and perennial law for us. Uh, therefore, humbly bowing our heads before you, the king of the universe, we recognize your dominion over Poland and our whole people living in the fatherland and throughout the world. And it goes on and on. And then the people respond back, you know, like they'll say, in our hearts, 
and then together Christ reign over us in our families. Amen. You know, and it and it continues in our schools and universities, um, offices, places of works, you know, service and rest. And I, at the end of it, I look at that. I say, this is pretty neat that they're acknowledging the reign of Jesus Christ. He reigns already, but now they're they're recognizing this reign and they're submitting themselves to it. And I thought that that is pretty good. I don't I don't see news stories like this too often. No, and it's uh, it actually literally sent chills as you were reading that. It's profoundly, <laughs> profoundly biblical. Jesus himself came preaching the the kingdom, the Basileia of God that was at hand. And then you look at how many books of the Bible. It's on my mind, Dan, because I'm just the last couple of weeks have been rereading the book of Hebrews. And but you see it also in uh, in Ephesians chapter one and in Colossians chapter two and First Corinthians fifteen. This theme keeps coming uh, up again and again as Jesus is Lord, Jesus is ruler, King of the universe, holding the universe in His hands. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. And then, of course, in Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, because Christ, when He died and rose, He was uh, He was rewarded by being ascended into the heavenlies and exalted at the right hand of the Father. This is not a secondary theme of the Bible. This is a preeminent theme. And so God expects not just individuals, and this I think is a mistake that Americans often make because of the history of separation of church and state, which is often misunderstood. We sort of privatize the faith. Many Christians, I believe, Dan, if you read that statement and you said, we now we want, want you to limit this to you and your individual family and your church. They would say, oh, we agree with that. Sure. On church Sunday morning, let us acknowledge Jesus as Lord. But that's not what the statement said. Jesus is Lord in our nation and in our churches and in our, in our schools and in, in offices and so on. They would draw a line there. But you see, the Bible doesn't permit us to do that. If Jesus is Lord, and this, is the, this picture is all over the New Testament. I mean, by implication, the old, too, looking forward. But in the New Testament, it's so clear the lordship of Christ over all things. Some people believe, and I tend to agree with this, this, that what you have touched on really is the central theme of the New Testament, the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. I mean, what was that first confession of the primitive church? Jesus is Lord. That was really, we talk about creeds and confessions, that actually was the first little short creed of the church ever. Jesus is Lord. Uh, So how eminently biblical that was. And the founders of our nation though many of them not Christians, at least understood something of that, and certainly a generation or two before, among the Puritans, uh, fully understood and intended to establish a city on a hill. People can criticize him for this and that and failure, sure, but having a good heart, they recognize precisely what you said. That, I think, is what we should be working for, what you just said and what those Polish believers have asserted. Yeah, and some people might be inclined to think, oh boy, you you Christians are really way off base today talking about this. But but I, I've found, as I've grown older, that a, that a Christian basis for government provides the most safety and freedom for a people in society. Uh, it helps them flourish. Uh, and one of the reasons is they simply embrace the moral law of God. Uh, things like, it's wrong to steal. <laughs> you know, that, right. that would have a profound effect upon our economics if we really believed it and practiced it. Dan, that is so true. People either misunderstand or slander those of us that hold that Christianity should shape politics as though there was some secret theocracy, that the goal is to force people to become Christians or something. That's just utterly false. In fact, I've said it this way before. A knowledgeable atheist, a knowledgeable atheist, 
would, I think, prefer to live in a Christian society oh, I think rather so. than an atheistic society. In a Christian society, no one would force him to become a Christian. He would be protected by the rule of law. Uh, he would be respected. Um, there wouldn't be any attack on his legitimate property. He would be given the right of free speech and all these other things. Whereas in an atheistic society, there is no barrier, certainly no philosophical or sociopolitical barrier from tyranny. So it's Christianity that gives us, and in fact, this is not some theory, Dan. Historically, societies that have been shaped by Christianity, though far from perfect, have tended to lead toward political liberty. Yes. Not atheistic societies. And <laughs> it's amazing people don't understand that fact. The most tyrannical, uh, evil, torturing, murdering societies of the 20th century were all atheistic. <laughs> the Soviet Union, uh, China, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, they were all atheistic. Uh, it was Christian societies historically, again, not perfect societies, that lay the groundwork for political liberty. Yeah, and you're, you're right there. Nothing is perfect until the eschaton, but but we can see amazing um, progress in the right direction. One thing I liked about Poland's statement was uh, the, the statement where they say, aware of our faults and abuse, uh, we, we ask forgiveness for all our sins, and in particular for turning away from the holy faith for our lack of love for you and our neighbor. And in that, they embrace the whole law of God, love for That's God, right. love for neighbor. And then they say, we ask you to forgive the social sins of our nation, all its defects, addictions, and enslavement. We renounce the devil and all his works. And that just gives me a big smile on my face when I hear words like that. If we had even a, a fairly sizable minority, not even a majority, of Christians and Christian churches in the United States that would not only issue that statement but begin to live by it, I think there could be a remarkable transformation. Uh, recognizing the, it's just, the statement you read is just staggering and a truthful in every detail. And that's actually what the Lord wants from us. I don't think people understand that we have this notion in the West, particularly the United States, of the importance of the, the vertical relationship with God. And we would never deny that. We're supposed to be right with God. But to be right with God, we have to act according as we should act to extend the kingdom of God in a lateral or horizontal way. So we haven't fulfilled our obligation merely by a vertical relationship. There has to be this horizontal relationship, not just to other believers, but in all areas of life. And to refuse to recognize the Lordship of Christ in all areas of life, as Francis Schaeffer would have put it, really is to deny his Lordship. It really is to deny his Lordship, because there's no area of modern life over which we can say, oh, Jesus is not Lord there. Right. And I think if you put it that way, Dan, I think Christians can begin to think, as speaking in England here, was it last year, someone asked, what should we take away from this conference? And I asked, there were a number of students there, I said, how many of you here believe Jesus is Lord? Everybody, all professing believers, raise sure. your hand. I said, is there any, how many of you believe that there is an area of life over which Jesus Christ is not Lord? <laughs> not a hand went up. And then I said, think hard about that. Think hard about that. If that is the case, then our goal is to press the truth of the gospel and the kingdom everywhere we go. That's what it means to be Christian people, kingdom people. Yeah, and it's really a a miracle of God as he transforms uh, people's hearts and and their lives, 
and and institutions. Um, part of the prayer of the Polish people was, let your Holy Spirit descend and renew the face of the earth, Amen. this earth. May he support us as we accomplish the obligations that are consequences of this national act, protect from evil, and realize our sanctification. That's a big word, sanctification. And I think you've been talking about that both at a personal level and perhaps at a, at a national level as well. That's- yeah, that's right. I think the first of those Christians often recognize my personal sanctification, being more like Jesus Christ. But there's much less of an emphasis on social sanctification. Yeah. Not just churches, but societies uh, are designed to be sanctified. And I think that's something that people don't quite understand, but that's certainly something that the Bible uh, indicates should happen. Not just individuals, but societies themselves should be sanctified. Sadly, we've kind of drifted away from that. And I think that's why the the United States stands on the precipice of God's judgment. Yeah. Now, uh, you you do a lot of work. Um, I, apparently, you travel around. Um, you, you do lectures. Uh, you're also a distinguished uh, visiting professor of culture and theology at Edinburgh Theological Seminary in Far, Texas. Uh, you're also on faculty at Blackstone Legal Fellowship of the Alliance Defending Freedom in Phoenix, Arizona. That that last thing there, um, what kind of work do you do with ADF? ADF um, is the, the largest uh, Christian legal organization in the U.S. Um, thank God they had a, had a string of, of victories at the Supreme Court recently. The latest, of course, the case with the uh, Baker and, um, and in Oregon, who yeah. uh, won his case. I speak for the have two sides, the litigation side, which I'm not involved in, and the educational side, which I am. Once a year they have a meeting uh, several weeks of what they call the Blackstone Legal Fellowship, where a number of young attorneys, anywhere from 150 to 170 of them, young Christian attorneys who are in law school or have just graduated, come to get training not just in Christian worldview, but a distinctively Christian approach to law and a legal philosophy. And so I go, this last year I was lecturing and speaking on uh, cultural Marxism. Uh, I've spoken in the past on um, the history of uh, liberty, American exceptionalism, which basically is America's being shaped by Christian truth uh, at its founding. Mm-hmm. But it's a privilege to be there and to be linked with these people who are doing such a remarkable, fine work, uncompromising. And uh, thank God we have had a couple of excellent Supreme Court nominations. Let's pray that, uh, in my view, that Kavanaugh is confirmed and those that believe in judicial originalism. But in a nutshell, that's kind of what ADF has been doing lately. Well, I hear good things about ADF, and I, I was delighted to hear that you're associated with them. Um, what about for that uh, mom that's a homeschooling mom who may be listening today, uh, who might be uh, tempted to think, oh, I'm not doing anything big, I'm not doing anything important, I, I think they're doing something amazingly important. Can you encourage our, our families today? I would go so far as to say, and I'm not saying it because you asked that question, Dan, but I've said it in other venues, I'm, I'm not certain that there is actually a more important uh, task in advancing the kingdom of God than of being a, a godly mother and, and dad, as the case might be. Mm. The family is um, the central human institution. Going back to creation, I mean, the church is vital. One would never want to diminish the church. But let's be honest about this. Had there never been a fall, there would never have been a church, mm-hmm. or at least not the way we would 
have a church today, you know, based in the redemptive work of Christ. But the family is a um, pre-fall institution. It's anchored in creation itself. God himself established it. God is a, fa- uh, is, is a father, and of course Jesus Christ is a son. So then we speak, of course, of the family of God. I'm not certain there is any more important kingdom work than moms who are training these little minds and hearts for the future, training these children to be faith, grow up, to trust Jesus Christ, to love him and his word, teaching them Christian truth under the power of the Spirit of God. Uh, That, to me, is far more vital than anything that any politician in Washington, D.C. can do. (laughs) You know, Dan, I I get a little, while I appreciate the faith should apply to politics, I get tired of the fact you turn on the TV and 24-7 cable news, it's all about something coming out of Washington, D.C. It's all just obsessed with politics. But the most important things that happen in this country do not happen in Washington, D.C. Amen. Or even in state capitals. They happen in the homes of godly people every day, what I'd like to call the rhythms of grace, getting up in the morning, spending time in prayer, reading the Word, going through the day, giving glory to God, being faithful to Him, influencing others for the kingdom, and on and on. Moms that do that, and you moms listening, I would urge you, do it with great faithfulness. Trust God and His promises to raise your children up. If and when they start to stray, if they start to stray, get on your knees before God and claim the covenant promises that he'll bring them back. To me, that is the great kingdom calling in the earth right there. Well, what a blessing it is to hear this. Uh, Today we've been talking with Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin. He is a minister, a theologian, author, and founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership in Coulterville, California. Uh, Quickly, Andrew, if someone wants to look you up, where can they go online? best place is just easy to remember christian culture all written solidly as one word christianculture.com they'll find all about about ccl and all the stuff we're doing if you want to see though there's a link there you want to see my blog it's just called doc sandlin d-o-c-s-a-n-d-l-i-n.com very good we'll put this on the website when this gets up there as a podcast as well Oh, Brother Sandlin, thank you very much for joining us today. God bless you, Dan. You keep doing what you're doing, my friend. I really appreciate it. (laughs) And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. Let your kingdom come And your will be done Right here on the like it is in heaven Let your kingdom come And your will be done Right here on the earth Like it is in heaven Thy cross is lifted o'er us We journey in its light We follow as you guide us Lead on, O oh 